Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I am Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. Today we're going to be talking a little bit about wheat fertility. If you've got any questions on that or anything else that's happening on your farm right now, we'd love to talk to you. The number here is 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. Or send us an email, radio at agphd.com. So for the last about three weeks now, either Darren or myself has been out on the road. Darren is today uh, doing some little farmer meetings and just visiting with farmers from around the country. So in the last three weeks, I have been all through the Dakotas, Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska. Um, I've seen a lot of crop, a lot of good-looking crop, and a lot of really poor-looking crop. I've seen a lot of weeds. I've seen a number of crops that are finishing, in my opinion, way too early. Some are still hanging on fairly well, so just a lot of variability out there. And it kind of leads me to our topic today, which is wheat fertilization. So one of the... Th- in, in the region of the country where we farm, which is, so we farm in South Dakota, but if you look at uh, basically two, 300 mile radius of where we farm, it's really dry. It's been really dry for over a year now. And so at a lot of these smaller farmer meetings I've been doing, I just talked to people about, hey, you could try to drought proof your crop. Now, I should say there's no way to perfectly ever drought proof a crop, but you can make your crop a lot more drought tolerant. And one of the things that we talk about is fertility, because if your crop starts to run short on any one nutrient, what it's going to do is it's going to start pulling more water in. So early in the season, if let's say your crop's in great shape for water, but it's short on P or K or whatever nutrient it is, it's going to start pulling water in, even though again, it doesn't need the water. It's just bringing the water in to get the nutrients. So what I'm saying here is you make your crop a water waster when you don't have the right amount and the right balance of fertility in your soil. So this is the reason why it's so important to do soil testing. And I'm not saying you have to spend an absolute fortune on soil testing. I'm not even saying you have to necessarily do it every year. But I am saying if you don't look at your soil fertility and look at the complete picture. I'm not just talking N, P, and K. I'm talking about the secondary nutrients like sulfur, calcium, magnesium. I'm talking about the micronutrients like zinc, copper, iron, boron, manganese, molybdenum. I'm talking about soil pH. I'm talking about looking at your overall organic matter level, soluble salts, all those kinds of things. If you look at the complete picture that you've got in your soil, now if you start making adjustments to that, you can have a crop that's more drought tolerant. This is a really big deal in a lot of wheat country because it's quite common when I'm talking to wheat producers who say, well, I can't spend much, Brian, because you know my yield potential isn't that high. And so my income potential isn't that high. So I got to be really careful about costs. I just say this, I don't care if a person is rich or poor. I don't care if crop prices are high or low. We always have to pay attention to costs because what we're really after is maximizing return on investment. And so anytime you can put anything out in your soil that's a good investment, either in yield or in building up the soil for future yield, well, I mean, we want to do that. We don't want to cut stuff that's making us money. But the challenge is, how do you know exactly what is making you money when it comes to fertility. So that's why we talk so much about soil testing and also matching up your soil test results to your yield results. 
If you've got GPS coordinates for your, your soil test points, just match those up to yield. Put that into a spreadsheet, and, I mean, that's what we've been doing the last three years. It's amazing. So then you can, if you put this into a spreadsheet, you can hit the trend line button. It'll show you the trend line in a chart, and then it'll show you if, hey, is more potassium paying or is it not? Is more phosphorus paying or is it not? And then you can better invest your fertility dollars. So anyway, we'll talk throughout the show about wheat fertilization. It's unbelievably important. Uh, and, and again, if you've got any questions, just let us know. Give us a call here, 844-44-AG-PHD. But right now, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's the mailbag! All right, uh, let's see. First one here comes from Jim, who says, What can I use on alfalfa to kill pigweeds and palmer amaranth? My first two cuttings were so clean, and the third had some pigweed, but... Uh, now, there are way too many pigweeds. The alfalfa I'm asking about is two years and four years old, and the stand's actually pretty good. Okay, so Jim, unfortunately, trying to kill pigweeds in alfalfa, we don't have any great option. Here are about the only broadleaf options you have in alfalfa post-emerge. You've got buckdrill, which is a really good product on lamb's quarters and pretty good on kochia, cocklebur, sunflower, that kind of thing. It's just weak on pigweed. So you can certainly try buckdrill, and what a lot of people will do is they'll mix a little butyrac with it, like an ounce or two of butyrac with, let's say, a pint of buckdrill. The butyrac is 2,4-DB, and yes, that is labeled on alfalfa, but it can be a little hard on the alfalfa, so I don't love using that, but I don't know what you do other than mixing the buckdrill together with a little bit of butyrac to try to get after pigweeds or palmer amaranth, because your third choice is raptor or pursuit. Uh, well, raptor or pursuit, they're ALS herbicides, and most of the pigweed species out there are resistant to ALS products. So this is about all we've got, unfortunately. Beyond that, we, we usually just say, look, if the alfalfa patch gets too weedy, then at some point you're just going to have to tear it up. I, I hate to say that, but I don't know what really else to do. Now, there is one other option that you certainly could try. If the pigweeds or palmer amaranth get above the height of the alfalfa, which I'm assuming they will, you could go out there with a wick and use something like uh, 2,4-D or dicamba. Um, and and wick the the top of those weeds. So if you're not familiar with that, what it is, it's they used to call these a rope wick um, or a weed wick. But anyway, it's basically a rope that is coated in 2,4-D or dicamba or whatever herbicide you decide to use. And usually you're mixing it up pretty straight. I mean, like literally even straight product, maybe two to one water to uh, to to the herbicide. But anyway, then as you run across the field and you keep that up above the height of the alfalfa, it will rub against those pigweeds and hopefully get them under control. So that would be the one option I would say is probably best because hand weeding uh, with as many pigweeds as you usually see, that's not going to work. All right, we're going to talk about fertility coming up next here on Ag PhD Radio. When you're ready to harvest more corn, Drago is ready to help. The proven Drago Series 2 cornhead with automatic self-adjusting deck plates beats competitive brands for harvest efficiency. And the new Drago GT features integrated deck plate ear shocks for unsurpassed yield capture. Harvest more. Return more with a Drago cornhead. For more information on Drago cornheads, go to dragotech.com. That's dragotec.com. 
Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. Proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions. Every week for more than two decades, AgPhD TV has provided agronomic information to make your farm more productive and profitable. In each episode, we discuss a wide range of topics covering everything from crop fertility, promoting soil health, improving the environment, pest control, and more. All designed to help you push your farm to higher yield goals and more profitability. Be sure to catch us on Tuesdays and Saturdays on RFD-TV. Check your local listings or visit agphd.com to learn more. Morton Buildings knows that great buildings need great people. And we want you to be the newest member of our team. Morton is expanding its construction crew, and we're seeking new and experienced candidates to fill our crew member positions. Morton provides great pay and training, so be a part of the next generation to build Morton. Don't let the opportunity to join the best construction crew in the business pass you by. Learn more on our careers page at mortonbuildings.com. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here live in the Morton studio. Today in the show, we're talking a little bit about wheat fertility, but again, we're happy to discuss anything that you would like to visit about. The number is 844-44-AG-PHD if you'd like to call in. First on the show today, we got Brian Wall with us. He is with AgriLiquid. Brian, how are you today? I'm good. How are you, Brian? Excellent. Okay, so we're talking wheat fertility, and a lot of times when I'm thinking about the AgriLiquid products, like on our own farm, for example, we're using a lot of those banded with a planter. But what do you do in a wheat situation when somebody's going to drill their wheat in? What's your preferred method of application? You know, we've got a lot of guys. Uh, a lot of guys have switched over to the air speeders, just breakers, um, and that's kind of, in a lot of cases, has excluded the liquid application. But we still do have quite a few that have liquid set up on their drills. Outside of that, you know, my recommendation is to uh, stream on uh, or, or band uh, as close as we can um, prior to or just following drilling. We've got a few guys that uh, that will go through, drill their wheat, and then follow that up with a fertilizer. Optimally, I would like to have that in furrow or in close proximity, but uh, there are some different solutions guys are using to use liquid uh, in the wheat program. As we were talking about uh, liquid and dry there, and, and you, you just mentioned you prefer to see it stream barred or banded or whatever, and you can use liquid on the drill. It just got me thinking about this, Brian. I've been out walking in one of our shelter belts recently, a new shelter belt we put in a few years ago just to see how things are doing coming out of this drought year. I have found dry fertilizer granules that we put on last spring still laying on the surface of the soil. And the reason why I bring that up is because I talk to so many wheat producers that are in a dry area and they go, boy, I don't have a lot of moisture to raise this crop. Well, how well do you think that crop's going to do when you put dry fertilizer on and it doesn't break down? The big advantage to liquid in my book is it's available right now. So I assume that's been one of your big selling points, talking liquid versus dry, correct? 
It really is. And in a year like you're talking about right now where it's dry going into drilling, um, it actually can cause a detriment to a point if a guy's putting 1152 or a, you know, a, a dry form of, of nutrient in with the seed, which is, which has become pretty typical. Um, it actually can draw moisture away from the seed, which, yep. you're, you know, you're trying to germinate. So, uh, we've seen and we've done quite a few tests where we've had uh, grow out conditions um, and that root will actually grow away from uh, the, the nutrition if there's a high salt content. And where you're talking about the dry fertilizer and dry conditions, again, you can compound some problems. Yep, I agree with you 100%. My dad used to talk about that a lot going back to the 1970s because there were a lot of people that were trying dry fertilizer and with the seed, and he said it was just a disaster in those dry years. So uh, what else do you usually visit with farmers about when it comes to wheat fertility? Are there any nutrients in particular that they say, boy, I got to do something about this? Well, the biggest thing that I would say, and and, and you're very well aware, you know, we've done this back to basics series uh, looking at... uh, uh, soil fertility and, and, and taking a look at it from that standpoint about what what's in the soil. The biggest problem that I run into are guys will call me up and they want a fertility program developed. And my first question to them is, do you have a soil test that I can take a look at? Uh, just one, for instance, um, one, one grower that we're working on and, and they do a lot of grazing of their wheat. And uh, I made some assumptions uh, prior to getting the soil test. Once I got the soil test, I saw that he actually was very low magnesium. And in a grazing type situation, that can compound some other issues. Uh, grass tetany uh, uh, can become a problem if you've got low mag. So just making sure that they're liming or they're, they're, they're making those soil amendments with the right nutrient or the right amendment that they uh, uh, need to be addressing. You know, dolomitic lime would have been a better solution uh, versus uh, uh, you know, high calcium lime because um, they actually drove their magnesium level down, which will there in turn end up in the wheat, which there in turn will end up in the, in the livestock. Um, from the standpoint of fertility, actual nutrients in the plant, uh, you know, I've heard you talk many a time, potassium is actually extremely important from the standpoint of standability, uh, as well as disease suppression and, uh, you know, staving off some of these dry conditions. So, you know, making sure that we're addressing the potassium, um, phosphorus. Uh, a lot of people maybe don't put as much emphasis on wheat uh, from a phosphorus need, um, but that root establishment right now is going to determine how its ability to withstand some drier conditions later on in the season, get through winter uh, with a healthier crop. So that's always key. Uh, and then nitrogen and sulfur um, are extremely important for protein building. So making sure that we don't lack ourselves in those areas. uh, So at the end of the year, we have good protein. Um, And outside of that, as far as the micronutrients that we look at, when we look at the most productive soils out there raising wheat, uh, we can a lot of times go back and, and look at higher iron and manganese levels. So wheat really loves iron and manganese as well as copper. Uh, So addressing some of those micronutrients as well. Yeah, I agree with you. 
I know that over in Europe, for example, they have really high levels of manganese where they're raising some of those tremendous wheat yields that they're getting over there. So that's a big deal. And you mentioned copper, too. That's one that we look at all the time for disease tolerance. So if a guy is having disease issues, many times we're able to trace that back to a lack of copper in the soil. But, Brian, here's one question that I had for you. A lot of guys will ask us, all right, let's say I got a dry fertilizer recommendation on P and K. How would I convert that over? to a liquid recommendation and switch part or all of my program over to liquid, what should I do based on, hey, I've got a dry recommendation right here? Yeah, so if you're looking at the dry recommendation, first off, what are we going for? Um, If we're looking at like a 0016 trying to push our potassium levels up, uh, more of a soil amendment than a nutrient, uh, I'm still going to make the recommendation on making that that uh, 0060 application. If you're talking about just taking a look at the nutrients versus uh, liquid versus dry, um, if we're incorporating that that nutrient in close proximity to the plant, uh, not exposing the phosphorus to a lot of cations where it's going to be tied up, um, we can actually improve the efficiency of that nutrient. So on a nitrogen standpoint, uh, when you take a look at that, you, you have to look at the the losses you're going to get, either volatility or leaching. Um, I'm actually in, you know, right now in central Kansas, and we just come through a really nice rainstorm, had about four inches of rain. Everybody's ground is in good condition right now to uh, uh, to get started drilling um, in, in the immediate area that I'm, I'm in. Um, but one of the things that we're looking at is how much nitrogen carryover did we have? Have we leached some of that through some of these good rains? Uh, so those are the things that I would be addressing um, right now and then looking later on at my top dress. How much nitrogen, how much sulfur, uh, so on and so forth, am I carrying through the winter? All right. Again, we've been talking to Brian Waugh with AgriLiquid. Brian, thanks a lot for the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. You bet. So one of the things that Brian had mentioned is stream barring, and we do a lot of that. I like in our own farm and we're talking small grains when it comes to the more leachable nutrients, the ones that can move with water. So things like nitrogen, sulfur, boron, we've got no issue with that. Our, our challenge becomes when people ask us about phosphorus that way. Now, potassium could possibly move, but it takes a lot of rain and light soil for it to move much down in the ground. But phosphorus is one that's really stuck. And to kind of go along with that, there are a couple other micronutrients, too, that we think about that just don't move well in soil, like zinc and copper. So if I've got phosphorus, zinc, and copper, those are not typically the ones that we talk about stream barring. Those are the ones we would like to get down early, preferably get them down into the ground somehow, some way. But then coming back later on, stream barring, like I say, nitrogen, sulfur, boron, those leachable ones are the ones that move in water. They'll work out pretty well for you if you want to do something like that. All right, so again, we are talking about wheat fertility today. If you've got any questions for us, just give us a call here, 844-44-AG-PHD, or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. We're going to get back to the Ag PhD mailbag in just a little bit. Been getting a lot of questions in, a wide variety of things that people are asking about today. So it's, uh, it, uh, it's going to be interesting when we get back to that. I'll also let you know we've got a couple more guests coming on to talk a little more about wheat fertility. And again, if you want to give us a call, you sure can. We'd be happy to discuss anything going on on your farm. Stay tuned. This is Ag PhD Radio. (laughs) 
Each year brings new and unique challenges to farming, and your operation needs to constantly adapt to meet them. That's why at AgBiome, we're working every day to bring you new and better solutions, microbial-based solutions that protect your crop and help it reach its full potential. To learn more about how we're doing it, visit agbiome.com. That's A-G-B-I-O-M-E.com. AgBiome, feeding the world responsibly, partnering with microbes for human benefit. Ag PhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the Ag PhD Insider Magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, updates and results from our in-field research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the Ag PhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. Boost your productivity and profitability with Soil Warrior from environmental tillage systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and your yield potential in just one strip-till pass. Now that's ROI. Contact us today at SoilWarrior.com. Get an extra semi-load out of your grain bin. The Enzone from FarmShop MFG can increase your stored beans moisture from 10 to 13%. On a 20,000 bushel bin, that's a free extra semi-load. Visit FarmShopMFG.com for more. If you've ever wondered how the Farmall got its name, here's an abbreviated list of the jobs the Case IH Farmall can do. Baling, cutting hay, feeding, hauling, loading, pulling, raking, cleaning barn, mixing feed, fertilizing, mowing, chopping, seeding, clearing, irrigating, furrowing, cultivating, hitching, digging, emergency tow, harrowing, hoisting, leading parades, excavating, grading. <sighs> Let's make it simple. This tractor does it all. So no matter what you're doing, can do comes in red. Farmall. Learn more at caseih.com farmall. Don't turn your fertilizer application plan into a guessing game. Understand exactly how much fertility you need to reach your yield goals with the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App. Simply enter your crop and your yield goal and the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App calculates the amount of nutrition needed to keep your crop healthy and working for you. Quit playing guessing games with your fertility needs. Download the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal App today. Available on the Apple App Store and in Google Play. What's new from New Farm? Longbow EC Herbicide, the latest in our portfolio of versatile weed management tools, gives you another Carfentrazone option, taking aim at more than 60 broadleaf weed species. And did we mention economical? Longbow EC's low use rate makes it a flexible tank mix partner with most burned down non-selective herbicides. Ask your dealer for Longbow EC, available for fall. Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, broadcasting today from the Morton Studio. Just talking about wheat fertility a little bit. If you've got any questions for us, just send us an email, radio at agphd.com. We'll get back to the Ag PhD mailbag in just a little bit. Right now we're going to go back to the phone lines, though. we got Barry calling in from out in Colorado. He's a farmer over on the east side of the state. Barry, how are things going for you today? Going pretty good. Excellent. Glad to have you on the show. Uh, so we're talking wheat fertility here. And as you get prepared for this next year's wheat crop, what are the big nutrients that uh, that you're kind of focused on for your farm outside of just nitrogen? Well, uh, the biggest, the big one would be, and the next biggest one would be phosphorus, of course. And 
and uh, and then it doesn't hurt to throw a little sulfur or zinc in there either. But phosphorus obviously is the big one, and, and especially putting it on as you point out because that's you need it in there by the seed. Yep, I agree completely. Now, I thought it was interesting. You mentioned sulfur and zinc. So a lot of times people will throw zinc out when we talk copper, or sorry, when we talk uh, when we talk corn, and they say copper or some other nutrient when we talk wheat. Uh, why zinc? What, what have you found with zinc applications in your wheat? Well, uh, we're not putting that much zinc on, and uh, uh, it, it's just one of the ones that maybe can help us a little bit. Uh, we're using a, uh, we went from 11520 uh, phosphorus source to a, a MES, which yeah. has a little bit of sulfur and zinc in it. And so, I mean, uh, <clears throat> you, I don't think we're going to lose that much if we don't put the zinc in one year. But uh, it, it, overall, it probably is a good way to get some zinc out there on our dryland acres. Yep. And uh, how about the sulfur? Have you seen in the past issues with lack of sulfur, or is there a reason why you switched from that 1152 over to the MES? Well, uh, one of the biggest reasons is they, they don't supply 1152 hardly anymore. <laughs> they, they're, yep. they're just forcing us. I was probably one of the last ones to, to switch, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, just because of the cost. The, the MES is going to cost you more money, but... Of course, you got a little sulfur in there and yeah. and some other things. And, and whether the added cost is worth the money, I'm not for sure. I, I think probably not, but uh, that's kind of where we're at with the supply. So you have dry land and irrigated acres. Do you do wheat, both dry land and irrigated, or is it all dry land, or what do you do? Well, we're, we're starting to uh, do a little more uh, irrigated wheat from from the standpoint of uh, <clears throat> the, the the rootworm problem in our corn is a little bit of a problem and and we need yeah. to rotate that a little bit uh, especially on not full irrigation uh, so so we're and then the other thing is we're probably going to start cutting back on our water so uh, you know usually on our full irrigation we're uh, corn and uh, but we'll probably have to start throwing some irrigated in there to that back on our water usage so irrigated uh wheat will become uh, more of a factor out here i believe uh, right now it's not too big a factor so does that change your fertility program at all other than just the fact that you may have to put a little more fertilizer on expecting bigger yields well the our, the, our dry land program out here in eastern colorado we're uh wheat uh corn fallow and so the the dry or the minimum till we do minimum till for corn, but the minimum till program to follow through for wheat. Uh, I think everybody is switching kind of back over to the old days. We do we have chemical that keeps the ground uh, clean until the end of June or first part of July. Yep. And then we, we run we run sweet blades, kind of like what we used to do. And we put, in our program, we put uh, our nitrogen on with ammonia and because uh, it's the cheapest form and we're making a trip out there anyway. And then in the spring, we uh, top dress with 20 pounds of uh, liquid. Now, the, when we go to an irrigated deal, the, the, what we'll, we'll probably go to more 
of a liquid or or a dry because uh, we're usually putting this we're planting this wheat right into corn stalks and uh, to to get the nitrogen on it's just it's too much uh, it's too much work it messes up our seed bed and uh, so we're we're just putting on uh, more of a liquid as a convenience. So do you do more stream barring then, or what do you do for getting more nitrogen on later in the season in wheat in that irrigated ground? So we can we can pump it through the sprinkler, or, you know, if you have a situation where uh, it's too hard to pump it through the sprinkler, we'll just stream bar it on. Yeah. So how do you decide how much more nitrogen you want to put out there? Do you do soil tests? Do you just kind of look at, oh, hey, this year's been pretty good, crop's looking good, I'm going to push it a little harder? Or what do you use to make your nitrogen decisions? Well, I mean, at the end, at the end of the harvest, you sure want to have at least 12% protein wheat. Yep. If, if you don't, you probably should have put some more nitrogen on. So, <laughs> so you know, in a perfect world, we would um, we would have everything soil tested and and know where we're at. But you know you know how it is. It's not a perfect world, and yep. sometimes you shoot from the hip. You go, well, we had a good crop, and we're gonna have to put on more, or the crop wasn't as good, and we probably got some carryover. So, uh, there, I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it. Uh, I, I probably shoot from the hip more, and 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 over the time, I I've done pretty good do it just doing that because I check it with soil tests. Sure. Yep. Absolutely. So, how did your wheat crop turn out this year for you? Well, it was pretty good. Um, we had uh, on our dry land, we averaged probably around uh, seventy to seventy-five. Oh. Um, we, we had quality problems because it got too hot. Yep. Uh, late. Our, and our and our irrigator was probably ninety ninety five. So we, I mean, it was. I mean, our quality is not the greatest. We probably averaged fifty five tests, but uh, other than that, it was pretty good. Yeah, it got real hot in a lot of areas of the country. So a lot of people were struggling with the exact same thing that you're talking about there. So anything new and different that you're thinking about as you go into this next cropping season for your wheat? Um. You know, not really. It's, you know, wheat is pretty much just a standard deal. Uh, you, you know, you got to watch for rust and, and, um, you know, weeds aren't usually a problem, but, uh, uh, not really. We'll probably keep doing the same thing. It seems like it's been working. And how about your corn crop? How's that looking so far? Have you started to cut anything there? No, they're, they're starting, they're starting to, um, you know, we, we started off to a really promising start and uh, really looking really good. Uh, March was the second wettest March and May was good. and uh, Or April was pretty good and May was. And, uh, but then about, uh, oh, around the 1st of July, it quit raining. And we had rain west of town but east of town you know you get over to kansas it's just uh it's just a uh, just dry too dry not gonna it, it it's gonna suffer we're gonna suffer on our dry land crops in certain places other places will probably make 80 90 100 bushel but uh our small wells we're gonna suffer on our irrigation because it's just 
you know, when it gets dry like this, it all is about water. How much water do you have? Yep. Yep, absolutely. And there are a lot of farmers in Colorado that are really suffering, got water rights issues and just a number of things. So, hey, uh, Barry, it's been great talking to you. Really appreciate your insight into all this. And uh, we want to wish you the best of luck as you go into the harvest season here. Hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You bet. Yeah, Yeah, thanks, Barry. Yeah, I thought Barry brought up uh, a a bunch of pretty interesting points there. so we're talking again today about wheat fertility and as you can see there's a lot of variance when you go from somebody like Barry who's dealing with some really dry conditions in a really dry area of the United States and they're they're still doing some fallow there uh, he's also doing some irrigation um, it, it absolutely can change what you're doing for your fertility overall so we'll keep talking about that a little bit next you're listening to Ag PhD Radio This just in from Live Action News. Innovation has come to the world of burndown. New Elevore herbicide controls your toughest weeds, even glyphosate and ALS-resistant weeds like mare's tail and henbit. Talk with your retailer about Elevore herbicide today and ask how you can start elevating your burndown. Are you combining around weed patches, waiting for weeds to dry down, or tired of spring burndown failures? Save time, nutrients, and moisture by including a Valor herbicide brand in your fall burndown program. Valor provides excellent residual control of tough weeds, including kochia, mare's tail, prickly lettuce, dandelion, plus suppression of bromes. Proactive, effective weed resistance management starts in the fall. Get a clean start for your next season with Valor Herbicide Brands. Always read and follow label directions. As a little girl, I always wanted to run the combine because it meant I was helping Dad. And Dad always said, farmers are helpers. I'm teaching that to my daughters, that farmers help our family, our neighbors, and our community. It's what I do at work. I help farmers get the equipment they need. My name is Kim, I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. Your schedule can change by the minute, making it hard to stay on top of the latest agronomy information. But at Ag PhD, we have some good news for you. If you miss an episode of Ag PhD TV or radio, you can catch up at agphd.com. With years of valuable content and the latest episodes available to stream for free, you can continue building your agronomic knowledge on any schedule. While you're there, don't forget to check for upcoming Ag PhD events and workshops. Watch, listen, and learn at agphd.com. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window makes life simple and it's a secure choice with powerful residual for visibly healthier corn swift simple secure veltima fungicide call your basf rep today always read and follow label directions veltima fungicide is not registered in all states when it comes to harvest every kernel counts and nothing captures more kernels than the new drago gt or the proven drago series 2 corn heads Both have automatic self-adjusting deck plates, and the new Drago GT features quad suspension deck plate ear shocks for even greater harvest efficiency. Nothing in the field 
captures more yield. For more information on Drago corn heads, go to dragotech.com. That's dragotec.com. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here live in the Morton studio. Today we're talking about wheat fertilization, and we're pleased to be joined next by Phil Needham. He's with Needham Ag Technologies. Phil, how are you doing today? Hey, Brian, doing good, sir. How are you? Excellent. All right, so when you talk to a wheat producer that's never worked with you before on soil fertility and just fertility in general, um, what are like the two top maybe two or three things that you'll usually visit with that producer about? Let's call it the most common mistakes you see where you go, hey, I'd really like to have you change this and do this a little bit different. What, what, what usually pops up for you? Sure, that's a good question. So I would say if I sat down with a new producer, the first thing I try to do is glean as much information from him or ideally an older family member, maybe the grower's father or grandfather, if he's still in the farming operation, and try and glean as much information on his fields that are coming to wheat or his fields in general. For example, they may have an 80-acre field behind their shop, and maybe half of that field used to be, I don't know, alfalfa for many years. Uh, maybe it's uh, Maybe it was in something else where they had hog manure on it. My point is you can't treat any field the same because almost every field's got a different history, either different cropping system, uh, different fertility from a point of view of uh, manure. So if you can sit down with a grower, again, ideally somebody that's worked with that land for many years, he'll instantly say, well, this farm was farmed differently until 10 years ago this area of the farm was farmed for this reason and we did that to it and very quickly again if you've got an older family member that knows and understands the history of that land you can start making what i call a background for your decisions so if if they can tell you you know some of these what i call background factors of the field you can start splitting that field into different management zones and managing them differently from a fertility perspective. Then if you sample them, soil sample them, I mean, and you find certain regions have got a lot more inherent fertility than others, you can adjust your base fertility up or down. Ideally, they've got some yield maps. And, you know, for many years, we've been normalizing yields over different crops over different years, and it's very common to see a 2x yield in certain regions of the field compared to the field average then of course you've got areas that are 50 percent the average so you've got to gather as much background information as you possibly can to make the best decision from a fertility perspective does that make sense yeah absolutely so i think just about everybody focuses on np and k and i want to come back to that but we do get a lot of questions anymore about micronutrients. And so far in the show, we've talked a little about zinc and copper. Um, are there, is there one micronutrient in particular that you see short on most of the farms you work with? It really depends on where you're located and the type of soil, I'd suggest. 
Uh, you know, I've got growers I work with in southern Alabama that are farming on very sandy soils, two to five CEC sandy soils. So in those situations, you know, you can pretty much apply a micro and get a response. <laughs> yeah. So zinc would be generally number one. Copper would be two. Uh, not that sulfur is a micro, but most of those soils are highly, highly responsive, obviously, to the mobile elements like sulfur, like chloride, if they're not ap applying a lot of potassium chloride. So in the hierarchy of micro, zinc and copper would be the two most popular. Now, if you've got a high pH soil, or if you've got a lot of organic matter, then some of your other elements, such as manganese, uh, can probably take priority over copper and zinc, okay? We were talking about manganese just a little bit earlier in the show, and I was just saying that over in Europe, a lot of the great wheat areas have high manganese levels. Well, you, you are from Europe, so can you tell us just a little about the importance of manganese in a really, really high-yield wheat crop? Sure. So the farming area I grew up from and the family farm has some high organic matter soils. And high organic matter soils, using the soil test we use or still use, uh, would be 5 to 10% organic matter. And those, for example, if you don't apply at least a single manganese application per year, and some people are using multiple applications, if you miss a strip or a small area across the field, it would stand out as pale green compared to dark green. It's visible. So, yes, on some of those situations, especially the higher organic matter soils, especially those that haven't had a strong history of, of manganese applications, you can get good plant health and yield responses to those applications. So it's really important. Again, it starts with soil testing, understanding you know, the cropping system, has it had frequent no-till? Is there a lot of residue on the soil surface that's tying up a lot of those micros? Are the soils cooler under that heavy residue and then they're less available? There's just a lot of things, and it goes back to the opening statement I made of, of, of understanding the, the background of the field fertility. All right, when it comes to nitrogen, I, I know in the past you've talked a lot about split applications, but what do you suggest when a farmer's in a drier area and they don't get lots of rainfall? I'm just thinking about like where we farm. Very commonly, we'll get an inch of rain a month, uh, you know, in the, right at the crucial time. So let's say it's May and June, and I go two months, and I literally only got two inches of rain. Is it still okay to stream bar nitrogen, or in those situations, do you like putting more N on early, or what do you suggest in the drier years? So you've got to have enough N down to take you through some of them dry spells, but if it's super dry, you don't need a lot of nitrogen. So it is a balance. I first started working with growers around the Aberdeen area. It was 2002. And that year, Aberdeen Airport reported, I think, two inches of rain between like April 1 and wheat harvest. So very, <laughs> very dry year was 2002. Yep. The guys in that year that put 80, 90, or 100 pound of N on their spring wheat in anhydrous form, yep. a lot of them guys did not harvest their wheat at all. It, it, it burnt up. It was zeroed out. Compared to the guys that were more conservative, such as we recommended, we put down 30, 40, maybe 50 pound of N at seeding time safely. 
and then we saw it was dry and we didn't put any more in on we saw it was dry and some of them guys cut 20 25 bush a week it's not great but they could a wheat crop with less in compared to the guys that put 80 to 100 pound of in in anhydrous form that but that got real thick real real thick early and just burnt up so there's a delicate balancing act between n for yield but not getting it too thick too early using way more nitrogen than you need just too many stems too many too many stems for the yield potential the moisture and then it burns up so it, it is a balancing act okay all right phil we got about a minute left what else would you like to bring up today when we start talking wheat fertility i know you could talk all day about it but uh anything quick that stands out to you Definitely get FOSS in the row at seeding time. If it's winter wheat, especially so, spring wheat, yes also. But there's still a lot of people out there that aren't using FOSS in the row with their wheat. You know, most growers in Kansas have done it for 30, 40 years and South Dakota and North Dakota and Montana. But you get out of those areas generally, people look at look at you like you've come up with something crazy if you tell them to put FOSS in the row. And we've got many years of research over many areas that show a 5 maybe a 10% yield response to placing P in the row compared to a broadcast application of the same rate of, of P. We've been talking to Phil Needham. He's with Needham Ag Technologies out of Kentucky, but he works with farmers all over the United States, and I assume, Phil, all over the globe as well, right? Yes, it's been somewhat of a challenge traveling with COVID, but (laughs) we're still doing some of that, but virtually. All right, uh, Phil, thanks a lot for the time. As always, this was fantastic. Take care, Brian. Thank you. Yep, you too. All right, we're going to get back to your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag coming up next. In an uncertain market, you need to maximize the quality and profitability of your stored grains by controlling profit-robbing insects. A tank mix of Daikon IGR and Sentinel EC insecticide, or Daikon IGR Plus, offers the long-term control of an insect growth regulator and the knockdown power of a broad-spectrum insecticide. Keep your grain clean with grain protectants from Central Life Sciences. To learn more, contact your local dealer or visit bugfreegrains.com. Nothing waits for a farmer. Not the weather, the banker, the crops. It's never at a farmer's convenience. So when it comes to crop protection savings programs, how come they get to ask you to wait for a rebate? Don't wait for rebates. Get the True Choice offer from Corteva AgriScience for instant upfront savings on crop protection products. Ask your local Pioneer sales representative or your crop protection retailer about the True Choice offer from Corteva. But don't wait. No matter what time of the year it is on your farm, with a Bayer Plus Rewards program, earning and redeeming rewards are always in season. Because when you buy two or more eligible seed or crop protection products throughout the year, you earn $3 per acre in cashback rewards. Cash you can redeem and reinvest in your farm later in the season. That's Bayer Plus Rewards, and that's how we're helping make every part of your season, well, rewarding. Visit MyBayerPlus.com to learn more. See program terms and conditions for full details. You can count on AgroLiquid for precision crop nutrition. When you don't get all your potash down in the fall, 
when weather or market prices change your management strategy, or when you want to balance your fertilizer program with micronutrients. AgroLiquid is ready with the products and application flexibility you want for in-season crop nutrition and the research-proven results you need. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. AgPhD has one mission, to give you the knowledge you need to make your farm more successful. That's why every issue of the AgPhD Insider magazine features crop fertility and pest management tips, insights into the world's highest yielding farmers, updates and results from our in-field research trials, as well as the latest agronomy information from Brian and Darren Hefty. We put it all in one place so you can make your farm more productive and profitable. Subscribe to the AgPhD Insider at agphdinsider.com. It's about time. Applied at Planning, new Zyway 3D fungicide from FMC delivers foliar disease protection from planting to harvest. Active ingredient Flutriafol moves from the soil through the corn as it grows for inside-out protection from roots to tassel. For season-long protection, choose first-of-its-kind Enfuro Zyway 3D fungicide. To learn more, call 815-362-7747 today. Always read and follow all label directions. Thanks for listening to Ag PhD Radio today. We are in the middle of the Ag PhD mailbag right now. If you've got a question for us, just email us radio at agphd.com. So we've been talking about wheat fertility today, and here's one from Jacob. He says, what is the best? What are the nutrient requirements to reach 100 bushel wheat in Kansas? Well, Jacob, doesn't really matter where you are. Uh, the requirements are pretty much going to be the same. So we do have an app for this, so the Ag PhD Fertilizer Removal app, if you just download that for your smartphone. And I, I have that up on my screen right now, and I just plugged in winter wheat, 100 bushels. Here's what we're looking at. Now, there are a couple of categories here. It's grain removal and stover. And I shouldn't even say removal for either one of these. It's how much does it take to produce the grain, and how much does it take to produce the stover? And then there's the total, okay? So... It just depends on what you're what you're looking at. So let me just give you uh, a few quick things. So nitrogen, 186 pounds in total. Phosphorus, 64, or I should say phosphate, 64 pounds. Potassium, K2O potassium, 150 pounds. And that's probably the big one where a lot of people go, oh, wow, that is a lot. But here's the breakdown on that. Out of that 150 pounds, about 30 is what it takes to produce the grain and 120 to produce the stover. And so the question is, are you going to bail up your residue or are you not? If you're leaving all your residue out there, then all of that 120 pounds that it was in the stover is going to stay out in the field. Now, I would say too, when you bail up your residue, there is certainly not 120 pounds is leaving the field. Um, it's, it's really variable in terms of how much potassium is going to be left in that stover at the end of the season. So you always want to test your stover if you're curious as to how much actually got removed from the field. So where I'm going with all this is do you need just to, enough to replace the grain that you pulled off or are you bailing up some stover and taking that away as well? 
A couple other things. So we were just talking about manganese a little bit ago. You need just shy of a pound of manganese, half a pound of zinc. Uh, you need a little over a pound of iron. So it, it, those aren't big figures. But like Phil Needham was just talking about, boy, if you don't put on some of these micronutrients, you absolutely can have some yield drag or yield loss, especially as you're going for some of the higher wheat yields. All right. Great question, Jacob. Appreciate that. Uh, next one is Alan from Nebraska, also asking, about, also asking about fertility, but this time about corn. He says, all right, just to clarify, like on your app, if I pull up corn and I say 240 bushels to the acre, it calls for 84 pounds of phosphate. Now, that 84 pounds, that's just for grain removal only. And yes, that's actual phosphate. So if you, like in his case, it says Alan here is spreading a blend that has 40 pounds of phosphate. So his, in his blend, he'd actually have to apply 210 pounds of that blend to get his 84 pounds. Yes, that's correct. He was putting out a 12.40. And for potash to get his 60 pounds uh, that he needs, just for grain removal only for 240 bushel corn, uh, would I need to spread 120 pounds of potash 0060? Uh, no, it would be 100 pounds of potash to get your 60 pounds of K2O potassium. So 100 pounds of potash you'd have to put out there to get your 60. All right, uh, let's see. Next one, we were talking a little bit earlier in the show about alfalfa. And I had just made the comment about post-emerge, we just don't have anything that's real good on pigweeds in alfalfa. So Gary sent an email in. He said um, he's from Wyoming. And in his alfalfa seed production fields, where they're trying to make sure they have no amaranth species or no pigweed species out there, what they're doing is a dormant application of Chateau. Now, Chateau, if you're not familiar with that, same thing as Valor. Uh, and then they follow that with a prowl application and irrigate it in. Uh, then after a few inches, if growth, if there is growth, um, then they'll do a second prowl application. He says it's the little pigweeds that make seed late that get into the seed crop, so that can be a real problem. A full rate of prowl early doesn't last long enough to control those late pigweeds, and I would definitely agree with that. So the reason why I didn't bring that up before is, number one, neither of those has post-emerge. Neither of those you can use post-emerge in your alfalfa to get burned down of pigweeds that are already there. But my other concern is just always, how much are we going to ding up that crop? When he's talking about irrigation, that's a real benefit because now you can put that prowl on, irrigate it right in, that's great. With the chateau and going dormant seeding, or when it's dormant, I should say, and applying the chateau, again, same thing as Valor that we commonly use in soybeans, I, I just get concerned it's going to ding that alfalfa up a little bit. Now, it's a heck of a lot better than nothing. So if you say, well, I'm going to lose the stand and I got to take the stand out or I could do this dormant treatment with Chateau. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of up to you whether you want to do that or not. But anyway, Gary, really appreciate that. Thanks for, uh, for giving us your feedback on that. All right, next one is from Matt, also an alfalfa question. He says, I have some alfalfa that's starting to get very heavy dandelion pressure. Is there anything I can do or spray on this and not kill the alfalfa? It is not Roundup alfalfa. Well, if it was Roundup ready alfalfa, then yeah, that's absolutely what I would be using to stop those dandelions. 
If the pressure gets too heavy, then you are looking at some type of dormant treatment in a lot of cases where people will try something like Chateau or uh, maybe it's a Metribuzin or, I mean, just, I mean, there, there are a lot of things that could potentially be tried. Just check the labels. But a lot of times what we will suggest is, hey, just go out there and try some Raptor. Try four or five ounces of Raptor and just see if that at least slows the dandelions down. You could also run with, like I was talking about earlier in the show, a combination of Bucktroll and a little bit of Buterac if you wanted to do that. So neither of those is going to be perfect. Roundup obviously would be a much, much better choice. But if you don't have that, then those are the options you're kind of left with. So yeah, if it's me, I'm probably trying Raptor first. All right, uh, next one. I don't have a name on this, but uh, they were commenting on our drain tile and flood reduction talk that we had recently on an Ag PhD show. So the, basically to set this up, I'll give you a little background. We had just made the comment when you start thinking about flooding, because a lot of people worry that, oh, I'm going to get all this water if you put in tile upstream from me. And I always say, no, 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 you're going to get less water long term, because the only way that I can pay for that drain tile is I have to raise more crop. And more crop takes more water. That's a fact. So anyway, this comment here is, are we certain that the water uptake of a crop is directly related to its biomass? I assume it would be more than double for a doubling of mass, given that respiration clearly does increase directly with biomass, but retention of water also increases, or am I mistaken? Look, we don't. I'm not saying it's necessarily double if we double the yield. We know this, that you can use you can get you can get more yield on less water sometimes if you do everything else right okay if you have the right fertility and you have great weed control and all these other things but i will just put it this way the more plants that i have growing out there the odds are pretty high that i'm going to use more water and i know i'm going to use more water when my yield is greater so yeah i don't know that it's necessarily double if i have double the yield or double the biomass i just know it's for sure going to be more um, all right, and then also from the same person commenting on that one, they just, uh, and we were talking about atrazine, they just said their comment here on this one was, if I'm not mistaken, atrazine might have a low LD50 for humans. That doesn't work out as cleanly for the actual ecosystem it's in. Um, look, there, there are different things that any pesticide can impact, and if you look at the SDS, or MSDS, I should say, the Material Safety Data Sheet, it will talk about safety, not just of humans, but of other things in the ecosystem. And we're not saying atrazine's the safest product ever or anything like that. We're simply saying the LD50, the lethal dose, is actually fairly low compared to things that you might consume every day. Like, let's say you take acetaminophen. Let's say you take caffeine uh, or even table salt. Uh, the LD50 for table salt is about the same as atrazine. So anyway, it was just simply talking about that. All right. And then finally from Tom, he says, how can I tell sudden death syndrome apart from normal yellowing of soybeans during uh, maturation? Look, um, it's it, it's very challenging for me. I, I, I mean, I've been an agronomist full time for over 30 years, and it's hard for me picking out some of these diseases. So a lot of times what I do, and, and the thing is, it's yellowing and it's going to be intervenal yellowing. But when the plant is maturing, you might get some of that as well. So a lot of times what I do is I just send the plants in. Uh, to a plant pathologist and have them tell me, does this for sure have sudden death or does it not? And that's quite frankly, the only way I'm 100% certain 
I've got SDS. All right, we hope you have enjoyed our show today. Before we go, I just want to say thanks to our production staff. My sister Janelle was running the controls for me. Thanks to our guests, and thanks to everybody who uh, sent in questions for us. And thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.